0: Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Hello, thank you for being with us today on The Storytellers. Meredith R. Stoddard writes folklore-inspired fiction from her she shed in Virginia. She studied literature and folklore at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Prior to that, she was a corporate trainer and an instructional designer. Her love of storytelling was earned right at her grandmother's kitchen table where stories were told for years and years. She also advocates for the use of traditional fibers and also the Scottish Gaelic language Meredith Stoddard, thank you for joining me at the microphone today. Thanks so much for having me, Grace. I love your show. I'm excited. Well, thank you. And we're going to talk about so many things. But one of the things I wanted to start with is really our path to publishing and how publishing has changed so much in -hmm. the last 18 months. You and I, full disclosure, you and I have never met. (laughs) We have never met in real life. We have never, this is actually our first one on one conversation. Mm -hmm. Yet, we've been working together for almost a year on the Instagram and Facebook groups, Bookish Road Trip, where we collaborate constantly. Very true. Talk about how, from the beginning of your writing process to today, how your publishing world has changed.
1: Well, um, you know, that's a great question. I mean, the first, the first, when I first started writing uh, The River Maiden, the first book in um, my series in 1999, um, the year I got married. So it's been 22 years that um, since I started writing that first book and, you know, going to now. And um, I mean, obviously there's a lot in my life that has changed, but it's the publishing industry altogether you know, um, has changed so much. I mean, when I went into, when I went into writing the river maiden, I was, you know, I thought I'm going to finish this book someday and, um, <laughs> and it's gonna, it's gonna get queried forever, And, you know, cause it's, it's kind of a genre bender, you know, it's a little bit fantasy. It's a little bit women's fiction. It's, you know, and so it's not an easy fit. So I expected to, you know, be trying to find a home for it for a long time. And, um, and then in shortly, like around the time I was finishing it, I, um, I went to a James River writers conference. Um, we know some other, uh, friends who are James, sure River writers members. It's a great organization. Um, and there was a, um, there was an agent there who was talking about, um, self publishing and talking about the fact that as long as you are committed to putting out the most quality product, that you can, um, that, you know, you can be successful. In fact, um, the path to profitability is much shorter because you don't have as many, you know, hands in the pot, so to speak. Um, and in, you know, in in listening to her talk about it, I, I was kind of um, inspired and, and thinking, you know what, this is the time for this book, because at the time, um, the Outlander TV series was fixing to come out. And, um, and this sort of has that sort of Scottish North Carolina connection. So it, it fit very well with what was going on in pop culture at the time. And I didn't want to spend another two years, you know, trying to find an agent and querying things like that. And so that, you know, that kind of talk was like, kind of inspired me to just, Push forth and find an editor, and you know make that investment so that I could put out a quality book, um, but not wait through so much of the traditional publishing process. Um, and that's that what I true. did. So I found a terrific editor, and um, you know, and did that, and that's what got
0: the ball rolling. And that's really changed dramatically too over the time since you wrote The River Maiden. Mm-hmm. And you know, it used to be, oh, I'm self published, and now the whole indie published world is so much more respected and you have these numbers of years behind you. And I think that shows in the quality of your work. So yeah. let's jump right back, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say that I think,
1: um, I think that indie publishing has become far more accepted. I think that the more um, the more indie published books that are of, qual- of a good quality are out there, you know, readers don't look at the copyright page. Like they don't look at who published the book. Um, they usually look at, you know, is it a good book? Does this blurb, you know, excite me?
0: Does it make me interested to read more? Um, and, and, and nobody ever asks wow. us who our publisher are. You know, maybe in, our, exactly. maybe in our author circles, we'll say, oh, you know, how does that work for you? Do you like your publisher? But nobody else has ever asked me Very whether true. it's been an, yeah, it's an interview or whatever. It just doesn't come up. So I agree with you. But now let's jump right into the River Maiden. Okay. In, our ex, in our exchange, in preparation for today. I said, where would you like to start? Because we are going to talk about your series. But I think you said something along the lines, if they read The River Maiden, they're going to be hooked. And I was hooked. <laughs> oh, Oh, totally, totally. And you talked about genres. And it's mm-hmm. not normally a, a genre I would navigate to, yes, the women's fiction, yes, historical, but not necessarily the folklore. So I want to talk about all of those things. But you had me at hello, which is always what any author wants. So would you gift us with just the first four paragraphs of your book? Absolutely.
1: Um, I, especially with the first three books, I I like to start with kind of a little intro sort of um, thoughts. And this is uh, the the beginning of The River Maiden. Morag McAlpin died when she was six years old, although death can be a relative term. It's sprinkled throughout our everyday language like so much cinnamon on top of our morning coffee. When we're excited, we say, I could just die. We get mortified when we're embarrassed. When kids know they're in trouble, they say, my parents are gonna kill me. And of course, there is the petit mort of sexual satisfaction. Our pop culture is full of sentient ghosts vampires, and zombies who interact with the world even after death. Our most prominent religions are based on what happens after we die. Hindus and Buddhists espouse reincarnation. Islam promises a heaven of gardens with rivers running through it. Mormons even allow you to convert relatives after they've died. Christianity is based on the idea that death is only a temporary condition, and like Jesus, believers will all be resurrected when the rapture comes. We do our best to change death from a period or even an exclamation point at the end of life into a comma or a semicolon. Whether little Marg's heart actually stopped on that morning in the spring of 1976 is debatable, but there is no doubt that the girl who woke up gasping for breath cradled in her grandmother's arms that day was not the same girl who had been picking flowers in the woods just that morning or laughing with her mother as she got ready for her bath. In that moment, when she stared shivering over her grandmother's shoulder at the limp form of her mother on the floor, the ground shifted beneath her feet and the very sky above her changed color. Nothing was ever the same. And for a child as young as six, the only solution was to become a different person. That was the day that Marek became Sarah and Sarah put away childish things like fairy tales.
0: Brava! <laughs> Thank you. There is so much in those four paragraphs that speaks to the quality of your writing. I love the as sprinkled as like cinnamon on our coffee. The amount of research that you had to do to get to that place of just the mm. the quick synopsis of death from all those religious points of view. Where does that come from for you? You know, I am just always curious.
1: I mean, you know, and as far as the religion goes, at the same time that I was um, that I was studying folklore and and literature at Carolina, I had I took enough classes to get a minor in religion, but um, couldn't couldn't uh, let some of those folklore and religion classes do double duty. So I, I, you know, absorbed a lot and studied a lot. I'm just always curious and I'm one of those I'm one of those folks that gets that sort of one little nugget and it makes me curious and I'll just drill down on it until I've found out almost everything I can
0: so that's- And that comes th- that comes through beautifully in your writing in terms of not only those little nuggets which I always cherish in any book but you know the flavor of your writing one of the things you taught me in the river maiden was about mouth music, something I had never heard about. Yes. Tell us about that. <laughs>
1: uh, mouth music is a, a kind of um, a way of singing in Scottish Gaelic um, that is very percussive. It's very quick. Um, it's meant to sort of double as, um, as a musical instrument. Um, so, and uh, fiddler, fiddle players in Cape Breton are actually, it's pretty common um, for people to say that if you can't sing mouth music, you can't play the, the fiddle. Uh, because they're so intertwined and they're so similar to each other. Um, so it's uh, just a terrific um, thing to listen to. Um, there are some great mouth music performers out there. Julie Fallis, uh Fallis is one of them. Um, she's in uh, Celtic Women. Uh, Mary Jane Lamond is a really good one from uh, from Cape Breton. Um, so it's uh, it's fun to listen to. Can
0: can you do mouth music?
1: A little you don't bit. Have to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> A little bit. I don't I
1: don't usually sing in public, but yeah, it's um it's fun. It's fun to sing if you're if you like singing.
0: I loved it from just those first four paragraphs, but also as I read the rest of your book. There's so many times where you really can't tell the difference between what's true and what's fantasy. How do you strike that balance in your work? Um
1: yeah you know i kind of think of it as fantasy for people who don't normally read fantasy like it's not you know it's a lot more susanna kearsley than it is uh george rr R. martin um you know there's a okay. there's a little bit of fantasy that weaves in there and i like um i like i don't know there's kind of the ultimate question for me as when i say that i write folklore inspired fiction is with everything in folklore starts with some bit of truth, right? There's always some little grain of, of, um, history or, you know, just life lessons that, um, folklore is different folktales are built around. And so I'm always thinking about, well, where is that truth? Where is that, you know, um, where does that come from? And in some cases it's easy. Like you have things like the Ballad of Frankie Silvers. Well, you can go back and look at court records about Frankie Silvers and what happened to her and um, and all of that. But then there are others that, um, you know, that are older and it's a little harder to tease out where the truth is. And so when I'm writing these things and I'm talking about folklore, uh, a lot of it is kind of trying to Figure out where that grain of truth is, and and weave that back into this sort of modern story about this woman who it starts in the 1990s, but um, as you as you probably noticed, it really starts long before that. <laughs> yes.
0: So, do you want to tell us more about the series, and also about why do you write the series? Is it harder, easier? Um. I,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that there are, gr- I, there, there are things about writing a series that are, that is easier because it gives you the opportunity to really dive deep into the main characters in the series. Um, and I love it. Like I know Sarah and Dermot inside out and I, you know, and I get to spend so much time with them. Um, but there are other, you know, pitfalls to it. Cause I sort of planned out this big long series and um, you know, there are other things that I'd like to write, too. I have another manuscript that's in revision right now that um, I'm just going to kind of I'm slow walking it because it's, uh, because I'm trying to focus on the series because my readers want to know what happens next in the series, which is the best. But it's also the worst because it makes me feel like I'm not writing fast. Always. <laughs> um, but uh, the inspiration for the series really is um, the idea and. It, it's the once and future series. It's the idea that um, you know King Arthur is supposed to be the once and future king, um, and what would happen if that, if the future part of that, happened now, and what would that look like, and how would that, um, how would that play out in modern times, and uh, that was sort of my jumping off point, and um, because I, I do like women's fiction, and I you know, some of that was about what would happen to the previous generation. What if a modern woman was suddenly told, hey, you're gonna be the mother of, you know, this king. And what would that do to her life? And how would that look? And so that's kind of where this sort of jumped out and started the ball rolling, uh, so to speak. And um, it's been an interesting adventure, I think, so far. And I've tried to weave in um, Arthurian legend, Scottish folklore, Appalachian folklore, just all of all of the things that I think would sort of feed into what makes, um, you know, what makes us us as a society. So,
0: And you do such a great job of that. I haven't gotten to the other ones in the series, but I can't wait. When you write your series, I've seen pictures of your she shed, which you are in <laughs> at the moment, yep. and you have everything mapped out. Talk about your writing process, please, and tell people about your She Shed. Because I'm very <laughs> well, jealous. I have lots of spaces to write, but I do not have a She Shed. Um, I love my shed. Uh, it's a little bit cold in the mornings, because
1: because um, I don't heat it at night when I'm not in here. Um, but So this time of year can be a little difficult, but I love it most of the time. Um, it's a great space for mapping that stuff out, and that's why I have the blackboard behind me. Um, And uh, yeah, as far as my writing process goes, I am a plotter. Um, And so I will lay out, you know, um, I'm a big fan of Save the Cat um, and Save the Cat writes a novel. And so I'll lay out my beat sheets um, and then kind of break that down into scenes that will get me through all of that. And I'm sure that's probably um, probably goes back to all the time I spent writing nonfiction in the corporate world um i'm used to outlining i like to have a roadmap um and uh i also have a tendency to get interrupted as i'm as i'm writing because i'm a mom and um you know things happen and so um having that roadmap helps me get back on task after um you know after getting interrupted uh and so it just it helps me be more productive um i have written without an outline before um and uh if you read the next book in the series cauldron um that the part of it that is all about sarah's mother i wrote um i that was my nanowrimo project i just sat down and wrote it out and that works it's okay um but i knew that that part was going to end up getting broken up and woven in with other things so i um but for, for the most part, I have to have that roadmap. Um, it keeps me. Going. I'm the same
0: way. I'm this. I need to, you know, in education circles, we talk about starting with the end in mind. We have to know where we're going to be, or we're not going to get there. Yeah. Um, and your ending to River Maiden is also quite um, spine tingling. <laughs> uh, do you know the end in your series? um do i know the end of the whole series no do you know the end of each of the books or or do you deliberately manipulate it so that is the jumping off point for the next book
1: um uh, yes and no i think when i originally started writing the river maiden i did not like i wrote a completely different ending um and uh and it was okay because i at the time that I wrote the original ending, I thought I was going to try to be traditionally published, and I knew that I could maybe get a publisher to bite on the first book, but not on like a giant series. So I was um, trying to make the first book, you know, self-contained. And um, and then when I decided to self-publish, I kind of the last chapter sells the next book when you're writing a series, mm-hmm. and so I kind of um, brought, pulled that in and thought, okay, this will be nice and electrifying, and hopefully make people want to move on to the next book, so. Well,
0: you, you, do, a, you do a good job of that, Meredith. <laughs> okay. One of the things in your bio struck me, because you and I have similar backgrounds in that we've both been corporate trainers. Mm-hmm. I did not know I wanted to be a storyteller. I certainly did lots of writing throughout my career. But your bio says you always knew you wanted to be a storyteller. What did that mean to you?
1: Um, well, I have always you know, my parents will even tell you, um, and they love to embarrass me with stories about when I was a kid and used to make up stories. Like mm-hmm. I would make up and act out whole, you know, stories and lives and things when I was uh, when I was younger, even before I, you know, knew how to read. And so I've kind of always had that. Um, and when I was young, you know, I spent so much time, my grandmother is kind of the memory keeper of our family. and Um, And we're a pretty big family in a pretty small town in North Carolina, so um, she knows kind of everybody and, you know, taught most of them in Sunday school and and loves to tell stories. And so I spent years and years and years, like during the summer, um, my folks would just pack my brother and I off to my grandparents' house for two weeks as soon as school got out. And um, um, because I'm sure they needed a break.
0: Good plan and, on your parents' part, yes <laughs>
1: yeah um and uh, and you know, we would spend the summers just listening to them and um and talking about it. and she would tell me uh, all the old family legends from you know generations back and um and stories about you know people in the town and stuff like that. so it was um I just got used to, living like that and, and thinking about it and trying to see the lessons in all of those. So even when I was a corporate trainer, and I'm sure this has probably been your experience as well. Some of the most effective classes are the ones where you're taking them through a narrative process. You know, like this is the task I'm trying to teach you. I'm going to tell you this story that's going to get you through this task. Um, and that helps implant those, you know, that new knowledge in people's minds. So Um, I find it very valuable. Um, And marketers will tell you the same thing. You know, if you can uh, if you can get people hooked on a story, then, um, you know, that's going to that's going to make them more attached to what you're trying to do, whatever that is.
0: So you've also brought in not only your corporate knowledge of writing and getting across the message, but also the marketing of it.
1: Yes. Well, I trained salespeople predominantly <laughs> when I was a corporate trainer. So um, so that is that's definitely part of it. And and I find also that the project management aspect of, um, you know, I mean, I used to create whole new hire curriculums when I was training and that whole, uh, you know, the management of getting all of the information and gathering it and editing it and, you know, go taking, going from start to actually teaching classes was, um, something that, you know, I got used to and it's, that's carried over because I, you know, I all have dates. Every, every time I sit down to write a book now, I don't always stick to these deadlines, but I always give myself deadlines. Like this is the milestone that I should be at on this date and, you know, so on. Um, doesn't always work that way because
0: life happens. <laughs> but um, but, but you, you've you yeah. answered one of my big questions because you are one of the hardest working and most prolific authors that I've had the opportunity to meet. And I guess the answer is time management because I don't know how you do all that you do. You manage the Instagram account for Bookish Road Trip. You're very active on your own. Mm-hmm. You're. You're in a variety. Talk to us just for a minute before we uh, begin to close. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your um, fiber arts, because you are the sure. only person I know who owns a spinning wheel, and maybe more than one. Uh, well, my, uh, the,
1: the same grandmother who um, sparked my love of storytelling, my grandfather, uh, was a weaver. Uh, their families both worked in um, textile mills in North Carolina and the Piedmont area of north carolina and um i just kind of got hooked on that you know after um after most of the mills closed down in the um 50s and 60s my grandfather went to nc state and got a job working in the school of textiles and um so nope there's fergus <laughs> um,
0: we love your dog
1: yeah he's a, he's a sweetie but he's loud um, but uh it, that um Got hooked on just all kinds of fibers, so knitting, crocheting, all of that stuff. And I love spinning my own yarn. And um, so, and my grandfather, when he was at state, he used to teach people how to use the spinners and um, and spin yarn. And he would bring that excess home, which we would all um, sort of share around the family because we we're all um, crocheters or, or knitters or whatever. And, um, so I still have yarn that my grandfather and students at NC State spun, you know, ages ago, but yeah, so I, I, spinning wheel is a wonderful, spinning your own yarn is a wonderful meditative process because it's just very simple task, but, um, but it's really nice and it's tactile. It's a great way to relax.
0: Well, I wish I knew you when I was writing my book, because I have this very short section where they are shearing sheep and llamas and making wool. And I could have just called you up and you could have given me the shortcut to that research of how does this all work? So as we begin to close, I always like to ask our guests, what's something quirky about you that people might not normally know? Oh, gosh. Um,
1: that's tough. I think, uh, you know, I am a language nerd. Like I love learning languages. And I for the series, I learned Gaelic, um, which I would not call myself fluent by any means, But um, but I enjoyed kind of getting into the mechanics of how the language works and stuff like that. And um, I have a hard time on Duolingo keeping up with all the different languages that I have um, because I have, you know, Scottish, Gaelic, and Irish, and Welsh, and, um, you know, Spanish, which I have, you know, been studying for years and years. So it's just, um, yeah, that's, that's the thing. I'm a nerd for language.
0: That's great. And I love that app, Duolingo. I use it myself. Yeah. So um, I want to just make sure people know where to find you. I know. Tell us about where they can find you and follow you because you're a Uh, meredithestoddard.com is, uh, is
1: my website. Um, And of course, as you mentioned, I'm always on Instagram at MR Stoddard um, and Twitter also at M underscore R underscore Stoddard. Uh, (laughs) And uh, yeah, I love talking with folks. So if, you know, if folks read my, uh, any of my books, and by the way, the river maiden is only 99 cents at most uh, ebook retailers. So folks can pick it up anytime, but uh, yeah, anybody who wants to read it and wants to talk, I'm always happy to interact with readers.
0: Well, Meredith, thank you for being such a great storyteller. This has been an episode of The Storytellers, copyrighted by Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network, and Grace Salmon. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Grace, it's been lovely. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.